Good morning, everyone. Um, Just join me as we continue to worship as we pray. Gracious and merciful God, would you help us this morning to hear your word that we may indeed truly understand, that understanding we may trust and believe, and believing that we may follow your way in all faithfulness, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Today, I want us to start by asking us a question that might be a bit piercing for many of us. Why do we often neglect prayer? What is it that keeps us from praying? spending time before God. Perhaps for some of us, it's our physical weakness. Maybe we are exhausted, perhaps overly stretched beyond. For many of us, we lack the discipline. And some of us, we're just indifferent to the world that is in desperate need of prayer. For some of us, we have this false sense of independence. We don't really need help. And for some of us, our lack of faith in the promises of God keeps us from coming to him. And for some of us, we're just outright rebellious. We don't want to. We refuse to. And perhaps there are some of us here also who have lost heart, discouraged. But pray we must, and we're called to persevere in prayer as we heard this morning from God's word. And I think today's passage will both comfort those of us who are perhaps losing heart, and it will be a a good, strong rebuke to some of us who are complacent and neglecting prayer for all the wrong reasons. Today's passage uh, from Luke 18 comes right after Jesus speaks in response to the Pharisees who ask him about the kingdom of God. It's like, how and when will this kingdom of God come? And basically they're asking when the Messiah will come and overthrow their enemies and establish the reign under King David. And in effect, Jesus responds by saying that if they only expect to recognize the kingdom of God in these miraculous signs, especially coupled with the destruction of the Roman government, then surely they will miss it. Jesus says kingdom of God is already in midst of you, not within you. Remember, Pharisees are not here seeking to follow, but he says it's in midst of you. You see, Jesus is the king, and wherever he wins people into allegiance, his reign is being established. The rest of the chapter 17 um, speaks of the second coming of Christ not as a hidden thing, not as a subtle thing, where one person might notice it and has to show someone else. No, um, 
The second coming will be like a bolt of lightning if his first coming is compared as a little candle light. You can't miss when he returns. You see, the passage where Jesus speaks, end of chapter 17, is directed to the disciples in the context of these Pharisees who's, who are inquiring. And today's passage is also directed to the disciples. And the question, after having read through, heard through the end of chapter 17, the question that the disciples were probably thinking of is a question of how can we endure to the end? How can we be found with faith as we wait, as we wait for his second coming? You see, today's passage is about prayer, and it does have large universal application. But more specifically, it's, it's really about in the context of Jesus' second coming. As we wait for his return, how are we to posture ourselves and how are we to live the life that he has given as disciples, seeking to follow him? You see, the disciples are going to face enormous challenges, um, running up to and including Jesus' trial and crucifixion, and after, they themselves as they are going to minister, they're going to experience tribulation. They're going to be under persecution. They're going to be oppressed. They're going to be marginalized. They're going to be tempted to lose hope because it's going to be hard. Are you tempted to lose hope this morning? Today's passage, Luke 18, 1 through 8, is actually as I mentioned, in the larger inclusion of Luke 17.20. If you read Luke 17.20 and notice when the kingdom of God would come and read Luke 18.8 where it speaks of when the Son of Man comes, it serves as an inclusio. Like a, a, and you have to read it together. And within the larger section, Luke 17.20 through 18.8, we see verses 1 through 8 where Jesus speaks about how to live with this respect of his second coming. Short passage, a short parable, eight short verses, and you can think of it in four sections. First, unlike most parables, he starts with the point of the parable. So verse one, we see the point of the parable. What is he trying to teach? And then verses two through five is the parable itself. And then we see the interpretation in verses 6 through first half of verse 8. And then the parable section ends with a very challenging, personal, poignant question. The question that we are all called to ask because he's asking. Now the parable starts, verse 1, and Jesus is speaking here. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, remember, he's talking about his coming. He's talking about catastrophic events. He's talking about great torment and pain. And he's trying to encourage, encourage his disciples to persist in prayer with faith. And like I mentioned, unlike most parables where you have to read till the end and even more to understand the meaning, Jesus here gives us the key. It's like, 
In the very beginning, the key's in the lock. All you have to do is turn, and the meaning is provided right there. Christ is calling us disciples and his disciples primarily there into a deep level of prayer. James talks about it in James 5. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We're called to pray with fervency, with perseverance, with consistency. When his coming seems slow, don't be discouraged, but persist in prayer. Because you know what? At the right time, he will come and he will answer our supplication for justice. How can we endure to the end? How can we last? How can we last in this day and age? It's a simple yet difficult command to pray, pray, and pray. Don't give up. Discipleship demands endurance. It demands unwavering trust and dependence on our gracious God. There's an interesting word in this verse. Um, This word um, is translated as ought. Sometimes it's translated in other parts of either Luke or Acts as must. And this Greek word shows up 18 times in Luke, 23 times in Acts. And it points to divine necessity, meaning God has planned, God has orchestrated, God demands this to happen. So when it speaks, they ought to always pray, they must always pray. It's a command. Don't lose heart. You need to. You ought to. Because God has planned for his disciples to pray. You want to last? Pray. It's not a suggestion. Because this is God's predetermined plan for his people It is really possible to lose heart. Also can be translated as grow weary. But we are not to lose heart. And we are to pray. Apostle Paul actually uses uh, this, this verb. Um, in 2 Corinthians 4, he speaks about being afflicted in every way. He speaks of being crushed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and given um, up to death for Jesus' sake. But... He does not lose heart. He speaks to the Ephesians not to become discouraged over his suffering. Don't be discouraged when, he su- when I suffer, Apostle Paul says, because he does not lose heart when he is afflicted in every way. Brothers and sisters, are you struggling with hope? What are you looking at? What are you reading? Jesus commands us to pray. He ordained that the elect disciples pray. This parable does teach us how we should pray. But it also, more importantly, directs us for the Lord to come and for the Lord to set things right, especially when suffering 
comes our way. Brothers and sisters, discipleship requires perseverance, persistence. Jesus, now in verse 2 through 5, speaks of the parable and begins by saying, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now imagine being a Hebrew at this time, you're hearing this parable for the first time, and you're kind of expecting Jesus to encourage his disciples about keeping on with praying and not losing heart. And then he begins with this line, there's a judge, and he did not fear God and did not respect people. It's not a good start. It's not a good way to start. You can't help but think, man, this courtroom is going to be in trouble because the judge is nothing like what you would expect from the scriptures. Um, Sometimes this parable is titled as the parable of the unjust judge and for a reason. This judge lacked the kind of qualities that would be most necessary for true justice. Um, In Old Testament, King Jehoshaphat um, best explains a standard for judges, and this is what it says in 2 Chronicles 19. Consider what you do, the king said, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. This judge, however, had no fear of God, no respect for man. Now, if you had the fear of God, you would necessarily help the needy widows. And there's a contrast that's being made here implicitly. God is not like the unjust judge here because God, who is righteous and just, will incline to help those who cry out. Now, this judge when taking this office of, well, is called to this responsibility, taking oath to administer justice, yet because he didn't follow the first or the second commandment, loving the Lord or loving his neighbor, he only had himself to think about. He's probably a wealthy, powerful leader in the upper strata of the echelon, couldn't care less about the poor and the defenseless, the very antithesis of what judge should be from biblical standard or from any standard, if you think about it. He only cared about himself, his own probable um, political expediency. Now, it is interesting that, as a side, Jesus, later on in his final days, stands before a judge who had also no regard for God or man, only ruled and made decisions based on his political expediency. And what did Pilate declare to the crowds? He said, I found no guilt deserving death, referencing Jesus. But just moments later, he orders Jesus to be crucified. I think we can be discouraged at times and perhaps feel a little um, lacking in hope when we look at the country we live in, and though we, we say uh, our country is supposed to be under God, the government that rules, and many who 
are in that governmental position, whether from a federal, state, or local level, have made this declaration of independence from God and are expressing hostility toward things of God. So in contrast to this judge, who is nothing like the kind of judge that the scripture speaks of, the passage continues by saying, there was a widow. You have the worst kind of judge you would want in power, and now we have a widow, someone with um, perhaps at the bottom end of a social um, strata. In Israel, a woman's link to the outside community depended mainly with a male family member. So if you're a daughter, your father would be giving you that access. Um, If you're a wife, your husband would. And if you're a widow, your son would be that person. However, in verse 3, we notice that widow had no male to plead her case. So she's left defenseless and vulnerable. No one to protect her. Now, under Jewish law, there should be this special protection for women such as this, as well as orphans. Yet, she's attacked, and she's too poor to hire any lawyer. Although she had a legitimate right cause, no one was standing on her side. Perhaps there was an issue with her dowry, or her husband's estate was being withheld, or some sort of financial situation, but she couldn't find any justice. Now, if this judge were a righteous judge, he would do the right thing, fearing God, caring for the people, but he wasn't. He was a rogue judge who could only be moved basically in three ways, and we see this happening in the world, unfortunately. This kind of judge will only heed your request with a large sum of bribe, Or because you are in a position of greater influence and power, you threaten them and they have to listen to you. Or the last, probably um, most painful to actually effect would be the, the plea. And this woman, she didn't have any money. And probably that's the very reason why she is coming on her own without anyone's help. She had no power and influence. So she pleads. Scripture doesn't say clearly, but the, the verb form suggests this repetition. So it is possible that she begged him wherever she had the chance on a regular, probably daily basis. Wherever she could see in the court, go up to him, ask again. When perhaps the colleagues are around, ask again. That would probably make him feel more embarrassed. When he's on the street, going from one place to another, plead again when he's buying for things in the market, when he's at home. What else could she do? That was the only weapon she had. She just wanted justice. It's not like she wanted a favor. She just wanted the right thing to be done. The verb, to give justice, sometimes translated as avenge. In the noun form, justice is used later on in Uh, End of the chapter 22, speaking of the day of vengeance, day where justice is given. And in other parts of scripture, like 2 Thessalonians, it speaks of Jesus' second coming. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. That is, giving justice 
on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel for our Lord Jesus. But this judge, for a while, he just remains unmoved. It doesn't serve him anything to do anything for this woman. I mean, he readily admits, though I neither fear God or respect man, man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me again and again, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. This is an interesting metaphor. Beat me down is uh, a boxing metaphor for beating someone and blacken their eye. Um, She's not physically beating, but her incessant plea is just getting on him. He's solely motivated by practicality, kind of like you know, before in early part of Luke, um, there's a man who's tucked in bed with his family and some of, a friend comes and asking for a favor. He doesn't want to do him a favor, but he doesn't want to be disturbed. So he, out of practicality, he responds. And this judge, likewise, just had enough of this incessant plea. He doesn't want his life to continue to be interrupted. He doesn't want to continue to be taxed and annoyed and bruised for his reputation, so he relents. For his sake, he gives in. He gives to her what she rightly deserved, but not out of real justice, but because it's costing him too much. Jesus tells us the meaning, the interpretation in verses 6 through 8, the first half. And Jesus said, hear what, the, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Did we just hear what he said? Will not God give justice to the elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Unfortunately, throughout church history, um, people have greatly misunderstood this parable. And they took this parable to teach that we need to have this kind of feverish, persistent um, way of coming to God and seeing that as a virtue, kind of frantically begging God to answer our prayers. God, please, please, please. But that's not what this parable is actually teaching at all. This sub-Christian version wrongly thinks of this kind of fervent prayer where you accumulate this kind of a meritorious critical mass uh, that God can't ignore. And then finally, God has to respond, kind of like this unjust judge. But actually, Jesus' point is not that at all. His point is not that God is like the unjust judge. In fact, this parable is a parable by way of contrast. You see, the ungodly judge is against everything that God stands for. This unjust judge is unjust. He doesn't care. He's unresponsive to the rights of those oppressed, to just causes. And Jesus didn't put him there to compare him to God, actually but he's using it as a bad example. How much more, Jesus is saying, 
is pointing out from this lesser, this unjust judge to the greater, God the Father, who is the just, caring judge. The questions that Jesus is asking are rhetorical questions. Will God give justice to his chosen people? Yes, of course. Because he's a just God who's promised to save his own people. Will he wait too long to save them? No. Because he will come at the right time. Even the worst judge will do what people demand when they keep demanding it. How much more a righteous, loving judge will this judge show justice to those that he actually loves and cares for? This parable is meant for the disciples to be encouraged to continue in prayer. God is everything that the judge is not, and we should be confident when we pray. And I think there are three things that I just want to highlight again that we can learn here. The first is that God is a just God, and he is fair in all his decisions and righteous in his all ways. He defends the widows and delivers the oppressed. He hears the pleas of his children when they cry out, and he vindicates them. It's not that he's reluctant at all. And there's an emphasis here. Uh, it says, will not God, absol- excuse me, will not God absolutely bring about justice? This, this phrase, will not, is an emphatic, it's as emphatic as it can be. It's pointing out that God will certainly do this. God will certainly, absolutely bring about justice because God does care. He is involved. He's not like this unjust judge who cares nothing about anything but himself. Now, Abraham was right when he said before, as he's standing before God, uh, facing the city, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The judge of all the earth does what is just. Now, we may experience injustices by the hands of people, but never by God. I think we can attest that we've received a lot of mercy. We didn't get what we deserved. We received a lot of grace. We received a lot that we didn't deserve. And we received some justice, as it was rightly deserved, but never injustice from the Lord God. Second is that we know that God is a loving God. And you know what? He knows us by name, and he has promised to save us. He knows who we are, and he has chosen those that belong to him. The biblical doctrine of election, the elect here, God knew before we even came to know him. And God has a plan for our salvation and promised to save us to the very end, that we would persevere, that we would be preserved to the end. This doctrine of election gives us comfort and strength to keep on praying. Disciples of Jesus are not strangers or nobodies. You see, they're not the widows. They're not helpless. They don't have no resources. They are his chosen elect. They've been adopted. Adopted 
as sons, whether you're male or female, as sons with full rights as heirs. And with that gives us full access to everything our Heavenly Father has. You are not a widow. You are beloved of God, co-inheritors with Jesus. You are in a different position. And third, we are reminded that our God is a wise God, especially in regards to his timing. In Second Peter, we're reminded that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years one day. Jesus isn't saying he's going to come immediately, but his delay is not a denial. And he will do things right and speedily when they need to be done. God will answer the disciples' cries in his time. He determines the time. Oswald Chambers writes, Some prayers are followed by silence from God because they're wrong. Others, because they're bigger than one can understand. It will be a wonderful moment for some of us when we stand before God and find that the prayers we clamor for in early days and imagine were never answered have been answered in the most amazing way and that God's silence has been the sign of the answer. Jonathan Edwards, perhaps one of the greatest preacher, greatest minds in this continent who lived in the middle of 1800s, 18th century, excuse me. He served as in a congregation in Northampton, Massachusetts for decades. But one day, uh, one of his, uh, the congregation actually turned on him, led by a man who began spreading false rumors and charges, accusing him of just evil things. And some of his parishioners came to him and asked, um, you know, to address the issues. But Jonathan Edwards said he wanted to um, remain silent. And when asked, why not vindicate yourself? This is what he said. If I vindicate myself, I get some level of vindication. But if I pray to Almighty God and wait for him to vindicate me, that vindication will be greater than anything any human can bring to pass. We're probably familiar with the passage that says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Um, in Romans. And when we hear the first part, vengeance is mine, I think it also makes us think that vengeance is bad. But the point is, vengeance is what God is called to do, not what we are called to do. We're not allowed to avenge for ourselves, but vengeance, seeking vengeance is God's prerogative, not ours. We're never to seek vengeance, although a lot of movies, especially with angry men, have to do with vengeance. It kind of points to the very root of our problem, right? Sinfulness there. But we're reminded that we are not to. And let God be the one who um, does that. And the, and the parable ends with the last sentence in the second half of verse 8. Nevertheless, it's an interesting question. When the Son of Man comes, speaking of himself, will he find faith on earth? way before in chapter 17 speaks about coming of the kingdom and Jesus is encouraging us to pray continually until he comes back but the question is 
when the Son of Man comes, will the disciples be found praying? Or would they have stopped because they had lost hope and given up? There is a relationship between prayer and faith. It goes together. It stands together and falls together. If we lose heart and drift away from prayer, then when Christ returns, he won't find faith. Scripture today and scripture everywhere reminds us that God knows. God knows what we're going through. God cares. He's not an unjust judge. And God will act. Maybe not right now, but sooner than we, sooner than expected. But I think the challenge for some of us is that when you're feeling kind of hopeless, when things are hard, um, we may begin to see God as if he is like the unjust judge. You see, the point of the parable is your God is not like the unjust judge. But when we are hopeless, we tend to think as if he is. Because we tend to think he doesn't care. Why is he not responding? Your God is not like the unjust judge. Because our God of the scripture is interested in you, unlike the unjust judge. He looks out for you. He has not forgotten about you. You see, the good news is God is not like that judge, and you are not like that widow. Yet isn't it interesting how we continually struggle feeling like that widow, incessantly asking God, listen to our prayers, what do we say? When Jesus returns, when he comes, when he brings justice with him, will we be found praying, trusting? Wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus comes and it's Saturday morning, we're praying together? That's a beautiful picture that I want to be part of. But will we be part of that when he comes? In the midst of our trials and tribulations, will we be found praying? Or will we have lost hope and stopped? This is a hard passage in some ways because it points out that there is something unbiblical about the idea that we can be saved if we don't persevere in prayer. Saved, elect people will persevere in prayer. His disciples are commanded it is divinely mandated order that you pray. Don't lose hope. Keep praying. Because without persevering prayer, faith and love at best becomes lukewarm. And what kind of lukewarm faith can save anyone? It just deserves to be sped out. And we're reminded from the beginning as Jesus points out why he is giving this parable, we're commanded to pray and not lose heart. Brothers and sisters, prayerlessness is disobedience. I want to ask you to just pause for a second and think about your prayers. 
sometimes I write my prayers because I think it helps me kind of look more objectively what's inside my heart and my mind. When we find ourselves repeating a certain request, do we think that quality of our prayer is dependent on the quantity of prayer, of words? When we find ourselves repeating the request over and over again, are some of us perhaps thinking like this widow that God is either ignorant and needs to be informed or just unconcerned and needs to be aroused? When we listen to what we pray and the repetition, do we deep down at moments think God is unwilling to answer and we must prevail over him? And we have to like soften God's heart as if he doesn't care like the unjust judge? Is that perhaps why sometimes we say the prayers that we lift up? Or do we repeat because we think God will be swayed with our zeal and piety? This is a picture you get. And Elijah is praying against a bunch of prophets of Baal. Our prayerlessness at the core is a gospel problem. I mean, it's a self-discipline problem, it's a rebellion problem, all of that too. But at the end of the day, if we find ourselves prayerless, it's probably because we're not getting what the Bible says or the gospel says about who God is. We need to remember, the God that we pray to is not an unjust judge. It's a just judge, heavenly father, who has adopted us and brought us into his family as his elect. We have every access. We don't need to grovel. We are his sons in Christ. And we are not like this widow who has no means. No. I think prayer is really, it shows our humility and our faith. C.S. Lewis says this about prayer. Um, I think it's a helpful explanation. If you want to see what's um, really in your basement, surprise your basement. If you sneak down into it and then flip on the light, you'll see the rats and spiders and middle of the floor. But if you don't surprise it, you, and if you gradually walk down, making a lot of noise, flipping on the lights, you'll never see what's really there. Everything goes into hiding. But if you surprise it, you'll see what's really there. And in a similar way, when we think about our human heart, how quickly does it go to prayer? It shows what it's made of and for whom it is made for. We don't need to go to God and beg like this widow. We don't have to keep bugging God as if he doesn't care, and we have to convince him, because we worship a just 
wise, loving God who carefully listens when we pray and answers in the best way and the best time. Brothers and sisters, Jesus commands us that we must pray and not lose hope. And that means in your personal time of reading the word, we need to be praying. And for those of us who are married, we need to be praying with our families. And most importantly, as a church, we need to come together and pray so that we don't lose hope. We have to come and pray together. The most important question that Jesus ends with is this. Not whether he's going to come. He, he knows he's coming. What he wants to know is when he comes and judges, will he find people praying the way he commanded in Luke 18? Let me close with uh, a quote from J.C. Ryle. Do you ever feel a secret inclination to hurry our prayers? Maybe you do. Sometimes I do. Or shorten our prayers? Or become careless about our prayers? Or omit our prayers altogether? Let us be sure when we do that it is in direct temptation from the devil. He's trying to sap and undermine the very citadel of our souls and to cast us down to hell. Let us resist the temptation and cast it behind our backs. Let us resolve to pray on steady, steadily, patiently, perseveringly, and let us never doubt that it does us good. However long the answer may be incoming, still let us pray on. Whatever sacrifice and self-denial it may cost us, let us pray on. Join me as we close with a prayer. Lord, we are convicted by our prayerlessness from your word today. You have commanded your disciples to not lose heart and keep praying. It is what the elect must do. Lord, we want to be in prayer when you do return. God, Increase our faith so that we trust you more. And in times when we think ourselves as that widow and see you as the unjust judge, help us come back to your word and be reminded who you are and whose we are. And may that gospel bring us to our knees to cry out, knowing that you are righteous, gracious God who hears. Brothers and sisters, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let us pray as we take this time.